This is The Talking Dead, a podcast dedicated to the AMC TV show, The Walking Dead. Hi, my name is Jason. And my name is Chris. And this is The Talking Dead, episode number 257, recorded Wednesday, March 16th, 2016. Very good, Jason. I'm glad you were doing the intro because I wrote down the wrong date in my notes. You did? I did. What date did you write down? <laughs> Wednesday, March 15th. Oh, close. <laughs> close, but I'm glad you said the right day. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We are here to do our listener feedback for the most recent episode of The Walking Dead. But tomorrow is also St. Patrick's Day, so I'd just like to throw that out there and say a happy St. Patty's Day to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any plans to celebrate, Jason? Zero. Like go to a parade, drink a green beer. Um, no. Strip naked, paint your body green and run through the neighborhood. That's a good idea, and I applaud the uh, the thought, but uh, no, no current plans to do that or any other uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day celebrations, although uh, I might could buy a Guinness on the way home. <laughs> really? Really, you? <laughs> no, I, I won't. I probably won't, but I, I could. Okay. It could happen. It could happen. <laughs> it's within the realm of possibility. Yeah. Well, I'm going to the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game tomorrow night with my daughter, so, and so that should be fun. That'll be good. With one of the you daughters. You're going to wear green? Uh, I don't have a lot of green, so... Do you have glasses that uh, have, like, green antennas on it with, uh, like, bouncy antennas with little balls on the end? I kind of wish I did, but no. You should find some. Yeah. Well, it's too bad the Dallas Stars aren't in town because they have green on their jerseys, but we're going to see the Florida Panthers uh, because my daughter is Belt's her favorite team. She has a Florida Panthers shirt, so I'll wear the Leaf jersey. She'll wear the Florida Panthers shirt. It'll be very adorable. Well, hopefully you don't get into a fight. Yeah, I hope not. Hope we can stay friends by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what I'm doing for St. Patrick's Day, though, and I think it is going to be fun. All right, before we get started here, I got a couple of things I want to just talk about really quickly. One is another giveaway we're doing. And it will be starting tonight. By the time you hear this, the giveaway will have begun. Um, and what you want to do is visit our website at talkingdeadpodcast.com and click, well, and go slash art of eating. That's the link, talkingdeadpodcast.com slash art of eating. There'll also be a link to it in the, in the menu in case you can't remember that. But what we are giving away is a book this time. A, a really, really nice book, and it's called The Art of Eating Through the Zombie Apocalypse, A Cookbook and Culinary Survival Guide. Uh, is there like a dandelion stew <clears throat> recipe? Because well, you can eat dandelions. Yeah, I know. I've eaten dandelions before. Good. The stalks. You don't eat the flower. You eat the, the green part. Right. Let me read you uh, some information here. Um, the Art of Eating Through the Zombie Apocalypse is a cookbook and culinary field guide for the busy Zpox survivor, with more than 75 recipes from No Need to Panic Bread and Apocalypse Soup for the Survivor's Soul to Pasta Aglio e Ono, oh <laughs> Down and Out Sauerkraut, and Twinkle Trifle, scads of gastronomic survival tips and dozens of diagrams and illustrations that help you scavenge, forage, and improvise your way to an artful post-apocalyptic post-apocalypse meal. So it's great. I've got a copy of the book here in front of me. It's 
a really, really nicely put together book. It has all the recipes, all kinds of survival tips for living in the forest, stuff like that. It's all put together in a really nice looking, beautiful package. And it's written by Lauren Wilson, illustrated by Christian Bathus. Uh, Bauthus. Sorry if that's wrong. I sure. Umlaut? B A U T H U S. No umlaut. No umlaut? Okay. No. Uh, that doesn't help anyway because I don't know how to pronounce the umlaut or how it modifies the pronunciation of a word. We had a listener write in not too long ago. We've had this conversation before and they wrote in about how to pronounce the umlaut. So okay, good. I'll have to go back to the email and reference that. But uh, The Art of Eating Through the Zombie Apocalypse, A Cookbook and Culinary Survival Guide. Big thanks to everybody from Smart Pop Books, which is an imprint of Ben Bella Books, for providing this to us. The giveaway will start tonight, so by the here, time you hear this, it'll be up and running, and it will run um, through the end of Season 6. So you'll have a day or two after Season 6 ends to enter this contest. Now, the way you enter is, um, there's a few ways. One, you can you know go to the page. It's similar to the last giveaway we did. You can you know visit us or Smart Pop Books on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us or them on Twitter, but you can also enter by posting an iTunes review uh, mm. of our podcast. So what you need to do, unfortunately, it's a manual process. You go to iTunes, you find us on there, post your review, star rating, and then uh, in the little app that manages the giveaway, just put your iTunes username in there and uh, submit the entry. That way I can look you up and I can find your review when it comes to choosing a winner. Awesome. So that's it. It's talkingdeadpodcast.com slash art of eating. Uh, and uh, it should be good. It's a great little book. Thanks again to Smart Pop, Smart Pop Books, an imprint of Ben Bella Books. I'm curious to see what the diagrams are. You mentioned that the, uh, the, uh, the book comes with uh, complete with diagrams. I'm, uh, I'm curious to see what they are. Diagrams, illustrations. Yeah, they're all really great. I have a copy of the book for you, Jason. So we'll have to get oh. together at some point. I'm on my way. <laughs> he actually left. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm still here. Yeah. Uh, all right. One more thing before we get into the listener feedback, and that is um, I just want to address something that a lot of people sent in. Apparently, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we made or reference or were wondering about, you know, a movie that is basically a first-person video game where the whole movie is told from a first-person perspective of one of the characters who is mute, I think, most of the time. Yeah. And like Norman, uh, what's his name from Half-Life? Yeah, I don't remember his name from Half-Life. But I know, I know what you mean. I've played the game. Um, so this exists, apparently, and a whole bunch of people sent us in links to a trailer for a movie called Hardcore Henry. <laughs> Hardcore Henry. <laughs> That's right, right? Hardcore Henry? Yeah, yeah. So... And and that's exactly what it is. It's imagine looking out the eyes of a character, being able to look down and see your body, your arms, everything you're holding. You know, you can see your feet if you look down while you're walking, stuff like that. But you don't say anything, and um, you never see yourself. I assume you don't, unless there's well, a Well, it's first person. It's right? first person, but if there's a mirror in the game, in the movie, I don't know. Oh, there probably will be. Maybe at the end. It's a surprise reveal. Oh, you're, yeah. Uh, there, you're probably at the end. That would be... You're, yeah. <laughs> you're wearing a chicken mask the whole time or something. You know, <laughs> I don't know. See, that would be excellent. Yeah. Or you have like a, a Lego minifigure head. 
that's a good, time. That's a good idea. That'd be wicked. <laughs> Anyways, I just wanted to bring it up since so many people sent it in to us. You and I have both watched the trailer, and I'm not so sure this was a good idea. <laughs> the, the making of this movie was a good idea, or I, I just mean the the. The, the way it's presented, the way it's done, I'm not so sure this works for a movie like it does for a video game. It's going to be a heck of a lot of shaky cam and creative edits is the way I'm looking at it from uh, yeah. from what I've seen so far. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just... I. I couldn't shake the feeling that this looks really dumb, and I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if, if I was trying to be nice about if, it. If 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 you folks, if there are folks out there who think it looks amazing, apparently this movie screened at a film festival, and there was a bidding war to buy it. So really, movie studios or whoever ended up buying it seemed to be really excited about it. But it doesn't really mean that it's a good movie. No, it just means that they think they can sell it. True, but. There has to be something in there they think that people want to see, and I'm not so sure anyone's going to see past the gimmicky nature of this. You know, Chris, I, I think we've had this conversation. I know we've had this conversation. I'm not sure we've had this conversation on the air. Mm-hmm. I think we may have, but, uh, you know, we're getting to the point in our lives where a lot of media is not really aimed at us. As the target audience. Yep. We've, we've so talked about this. When, when you say things like, I'm not sure anybody is going to want to see this and will think it's good, I'm thinking, you know, that may not be true. And I hate to break it to you, but there might be an audience out there with, that would love this. You, you could be right. You could be right. I mean, we're still within the 18 to 49. Is it 18 to 49, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I know we're getting towards the higher end of that. But, yeah. But we're still in that. That's the prize demographic. I do like my pop culture, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, is definitely not targeted at me. And I don't need to see it or experience what they're uh, what they're building or making. Okay. Well, maybe because we talked about this movie on here, we should go see it when it comes out or when it's available. And then maybe review it. I'll see this movie. Like I, I, I'm worried about it and it's probably going to be complete garbage in my opinion, but I will see this movie. I'm not entirely convinced that I will see this movie in the theater. Right. Unless it's 3D. If it's 3D, (laughs) that might be a tough choice. If it's just going to be flat, I think I can wait, but uh, I might be able to stomach this if it's, uh, if it's in 3D. All right. Well, I appreciate everyone who sent it in because, you know, it's one of those scenarios where we mention something, ask and thou shall receive. We talk about something and everyone's like, here it is, right? Yeah. Right here in front of you. Now, granted, if we were the target audience, we would have seen this trailer yeah, before talking about it. It's true. I, I had never heard of it before. So I don't know. Anyways, thanks to everyone who sent it in. It was definitely at least uh, interesting to take a look at. And it's Gordon Freeman. On uh, for Half Life, oh, the main Gordon character Freeman. of Gordon Freeman, who in fact does not have a body, because if you look down, you do not see feet. No, he's just a floating head and some arms, I guess. Yeah, he's a floating perspective. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that can't talk. All right, let's let's move on. Listener feedback. All right, time for listener feedback. Am I going first, Mister Miles? You are going first, Mister Fairhurst. Okay, so our first 
message here is an email uh, from Erica in Monterey, California, and it's actually about last week's episode, not this one, but it's just one thing I wanted to revisit before we move on into the feedback for the same boat. Erica writes, about the sleeping debate and whether the Savior's subconscious sleeping brains would recognize the unfamiliar sounds caused by our group. I think the hour and time our group attacked is really important. They attacked a couple of hours just before dawn. It's important because of sleep cycles. We go through four different sleep cycles in 90-minute intervals with REM, R-E-M, being the last. During the last two, three hours of sleep, REM sleep occurs more than any other time. When we are in REM sleep, we are harder to arouse than during any other sleep cycle. I know this because I am normally a very light sleeper between the hours of 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., but during 4 to 5 or 6 a.m., I have slept through alarm clocks, phone calls, sirens, thunder, earthquakes, hail, and other noises that would have normally woken me up. So I don't think it was that unlikely that the saviors didn't wake up until the alarm. Except in Glenn's room. They were making way too much noise and taking way too much time. I get it. Glenn needed to try and process it. But Rick... He was a ninja about it, and I completely find it believable that Rick's kills didn't wake them up. He's a pro. He's a pro. He is a pro at sneaking into people's rooms while they sleep and stabbing them in the head. <laughs> well, it's nice to be good at something, right? And if you're good at something, make sure you get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, and he's getting paid in, I don't know. Food. food. He's getting paid in food. He get the, He's doing this for half the supplies. That's true. He's getting, he's getting paid very well in that case. I need my son and daughter to eat. Therefore, I need to stab these people in the head while I sleep. Yeah. Fair trade. Fair trade, I guess. Anyways, when you're in REM sleep, it's harder to wake up. And I'm pretty sure that's true because I find it really difficult to wake up sometimes in the morning. Yeah. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I, I tend to be a really good sleeper. I'll fall asleep uh, under pretty much any circumstances and sleep through whatever, uh, whatever hell or, uh, you know, apocalypse comes along during the night. I'll just sleep through it. I've been known to turn off my alarm in my sleep. Hmm. I don't know how that happens, but I'll actually go through the complex process of uh, turning off the alarm so that it doesn't wake me up. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> well, not that not since I got married because my wife will wake me up now. Uh, she's like you, Erica. Uh, she's a very light sleeper, but during those last hour or two at night, she uh, that's the best sleep she gets, and doesn't want to get up at six a.m. when we get up. Yeah. Well, I, I, so it makes sense that they'd go in at that sort of last few hours of the night when people are least likely to wake up. Yeah, that does make sense. I, I'm pretty sure Rick was thinking that when he made his plan. Uh, yeah, good thinking, <laughs> Rick. He is a pro. He's a, he's a pro, exactly. He's done this before. All right. Thank you. All right. So now we get into feedback for this week's episode. Yes. So first email is from Same James in Ireland. Uh, my holy crap this week is Maggie's pregnant. Really? It's only been mentioned 10 times per episode since she announced it. <laughs> Jeez, just have the baby already. <laughs> it's What has it been? When did we find out she was pregnant? They hinted at it back, uh, way back at the beginning of season six when they were had the whole town in, in a house and they were talking about what to do about the quarry, right? Right. And then nothing for a while. And then it was confirmed. Shoot, when was it confirmed? Just a couple of episodes ago. Are you sure it wasn't before the mid-season break? It was before the mid-season break. I think it might have been. So it was confirmed It was then. when Glenn was dead. Right. Did she tell Aaron about I it? I think she told Aaron about it. Yeah, okay. So it was confirmed back then, 
And it's been like what four or five episodes since then, and yeah. uh, I guess Jane, same James is ready for her to have the baby. <laughs> well, they're telling everybody; they all tell strangers, like, "Oh, we ran into new people. Maggie's pregnant." Yeah, <laughs> right. It was a manipulation tactic, though. Well, yeah, but it's still the fact is they're telling everybody that they see, meet, or you know, I'm surprised they didn't mention it on the radio. Oh, and by the way, Maggie's pregnant. In case anybody else is listening, <laughs> just in case, in case you didn't know. Uh, all right, next up is Miles in San Francisco, another quick one. Miles says, these Negan pricks got nothing on Rick's group. It's almost like Rick handed out plot device shields to everyone. A little too easy so far. Yeah, they all have the PDM shields. They do, and it has definitely been too easy so far. I think they, I think our group is going to get a rude awakening when they finally meet up with, you know, Negan himself or someone a little more competent they don't catch off guard like all these people yeah well they're yeah negan uh, i still think negan's a person and i think negan and his core core group of people that that are around him are going to be prepared for rick and the gang can you remind me of something jason at the very end of this episode when they've got um oh shoot what's his name the guy who had the motorbike yeah yeah and 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 rick says tell me you know was Negan in that building last night or is Negan here? And his response is, I am Negan, shithead. No, his, his response was both. He was both in the, in the thing last night and here because uh, I am Negan. And then I think he said yeah. they are Negan too. Yeah, my question was, did he say I am Negan or I am well, Negan? He did say I am Negan. Yes, and, he did. And we are Negan. So do you think Rick actually thought – I, he's saying I'm Negan, and that's why he just killed him so quickly. Or do you think Rick even heard the rest of that sort of phrase? And I don't and, think Rick believes that this is Negan. No, I was no. wondering that. I, I started thinking about it on the way home today, whether maybe Rick just heard I'm Negan and was like, "Okay, then you're you got to go." Yeah, but it, I that very well could be. But I didn't get the impression that he thought that uh, this was Negan. Right. Okay. Well, in any case, they've killed a lot of people and. They're going to have a rude awakening, I think, when they meet someone who's uh, upset about this. I agree. Mm -hmm. So next we have Gary in Bolton, UK. My holy crap moment was how cold and ruthless the killing of the reinforcements was by setting them on fire. Planned, nothing victims could do to fight back, and a very painful death. Well, yes. I think being locked in a concrete room that's lit on fire like that would be one of the most horrific things you could experience. <laughs> It would be bad. And good Lord, I would bad. not want to, yeah. Yeah. But then again, lighting people on fire is uh, not an easy task, and I'm not entirely convinced that just a thin layer of gasoline on the floor would be enough to kill everybody. Yeah, it would definitely incapacitate you, though. When you got, when you think about how much – because oh. gas fumes burn like crazy, right? Yeah, it would hurt, and it would be a long-suffering death. I don't think that they died just from burning to death. Mm. I think they probably inhaled some flames, which you can oh. do, and is very painful, and then they eventually suffocated. Or and even if they survive the experience, I mean, they're burned so badly and internally burned. I mean, without really – advanced medical attention, they probably aren't going to survive the recovery anyway. Yeah, but I don't think that like, the direct exposure to the flames would have killed them. Jesus, it's even worse when you think about them walking into that room, breathing in uh, gasoline fumes, even for a few seconds, and then the whole room igniting in a ball of fire, and like it just goes right into your lungs and burns you from the inside out. That's horrible. 
Yeah, it is horrible. And I don't know if you've you ever worked at a gas station. No, I've uh, been to gas stations though. You've been to gas stations. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I've worked at a gas station. I've gone home after a days of day work and being covered in gas. And I've gone home after a day's work and been covered in diesel. Ugh. And I can tell you that if I walked into a room that had a layer of gasoline all the all over the floor, I'd be able to tell. That it smelled like gasoline. Jeez, it smells really strong like gasoline in this room labeled kill room. I wonder <laughs> what's going on. And these guys, all they said was, oh, it's, the floor is kind of slick in here. It's, uh, there's nobody here. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to really like the smell of gas. Well, I mean, huffing is, uh, is a pastime. Yeah, but I wasn't doing that. I would drive into a gas station, my, my parents would need to fill up or something and be like, oh, the sweet smell of gas stations. Yeah, kids are dumb. Yeah, kids are idiots. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that was just me, though. <laughs> I um, would attribute it to kids. I've known other kids that like the smell of gasoline, <laughs> but uh, diesel is another, uh, another matter. That stuff stinks. All right. Thank you, Gary, for that. Next up is Haley in PA. That's Pennsylvania, right? I believe so. I think so. Do you think it's possible that Shell had her baby, but had to give him up as tribute to Negan? Perhaps when they finally find Alpha Negan, they will meet a child named Frankie, and Maggie will connect the dots that he was Shell's baby. Could be. Maybe she he maybe she tried to steal her baby back, and that's why they cut her finger off. No, she said she tried to steal gas. Oh, that's right. For something, and then her boyfriend got blown up. Or did she say she tried to steal the gas so she could go look for her boyfriend? Then found that he got blown up. Either way, she stole the gas, but... Uh, well, unless gas is a euphemism for her baby. But I don't <laughs> think so. I think you're right, and I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, that's a very good... Uh, uh, that's a good point. She might have had the baby, and I don't know if... <sighs> okay, we're going to get into area that I know about from the comic, so I'm just going to stop talking. Okay, yeah, we, we don't want to spoil anything from the comic, but I don't... I mean, the point is that... She never said what happened to the baby. She just said that there was a baby and that was going to be its name or that is its name. So, yeah, maybe that kid is still out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's one more thing we're going to learn about this group called the Saviors. Yep. So I don't Can know. Be. All right. Next, we have an email from Michael in London. I'm really unsure what is happening with Carol, Carol's character. We've had a few seasons where she's had to kill people as a necessity. Although, obviously, she didn't want to do it, she seemed like it was something she could cope with as it was essential for the group's survival and could take it in stride. Now, all of a sudden, she's being hit with a moral conscience, and every time there's a kill, she seems shaken up by it. There seems to be no consistency with her feelings. The saviors were a lot worse than Karen and David, so not sure why she was upset by comparison. Don't get me started on the kill human list, which has just appeared from nowhere, too. The fact that she is still doing the scared, frightened act before she kills people is also making her hard to work out. Do you think this is really clever writing by the writers or just sloppy and inconsistent character development? Um, Let's go straight into the next email here from Chris in the UK. And he says, I'm not so sure that Carol's change of character is either sudden or even a change of character at all. She's prepared to do what has to be done, but they've never shown her being happy about it. We've seen her upset when she kills. Yes, she's learned to detach herself uh, from her emotions in the moment. And if, the, if, she, if she thinks she did the right thing, she's prepared to defend her actions. But she was never a robot. 
It's also significant that she's had something lately that she has never previously, uh, never, she was never previously able to enjoy two months of downtime, two months where nothing major happened in Carol's terms, two months to think about what she's done. Perfectly natural for doubts to kick in with the luxury of time to reflect. This episode showed she can still do what she has to do, more or less, but now she really doesn't want to. All of this, for my money, amounts to an incons- uh, to, not to an inconsistent character, but to a complex, fully realized character. Frankly, if this was Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, both of which I love, we'd be seeing Carol held up as an example of how great TV could be. So these two emails, I think, kind of go together. On one hand, you know, Michael in London is feeling like Carol's been inconsistent and she's wavering all over the place. Which is true, because this this uh, remorse is recent. So uh, Michael is right in that this uh, this moral quandary she's having has only now just appeared over the last couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. But Chris in the UK gives us a plausible in-story reason for that yeah the well partly the two months of time that she's had to reflect and i mean you know hindsight can change a person's opinion almost entirely um depending on the issue it might take two weeks two months or 20 years right but uh, carol's definitely had some time to think about it who knows where or when she started creating that tally of the people she's killed i don't think it matters though i mean she probably just one day sat down and thought, you know, I've killed a lot of people. Let's write it out. And then she gets that 18 number, and now she's up over 20 somewhere after the incidents of this episode. And that's probably going to, that kind of thing, and that kind, that kind of time to think about it, coupled with what Morgan's been telling her, all these things are working to creep into her brain and make her just think about what she's done. And she's clearly starting to just... Double, second guess or, or see the other side of things. Yeah, that, uh, that's true. So I, I think she's had a lot of time to reflect now that she's uh, baking acorns in order to make cookies. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that if, you, if you're not doing anything while the baking is occurring, you, you're starting to think about things. And you're, when your brain wanders, it, uh, it tends to wander back to the people that you've killed. <laughs> I know when I'm daydreaming. That's all I think about. <laughs> Honestly, Chris, what is, your, uh, what is your kill count? What are you up to now? My kill count... Do you count? Do, do, should I include raccoons? No, you should just live uh, living human beings. All right, I, I gotta not, go. Not previously dead ones already. I've got to go with zero then. Yeah, I think uh, if I th- thought about it long and hard, and I put the the list down on paper, uh, I would also come up with that exact zero number. That big zero, yeah. Yeah, raccoons. You've killed raccoons. I have killed one raccoon by accident with my car. Oh, you ran over it with your car? I or ran did you over. open the door on it? <laughs> yeah, he was standing beside me. I opened the door. and <laughs> I accidentally put his head in the door and slammed it shut six times. It was purely by accident. No. I didn't mean to do it. No, no, no. I was, um, I was, it was nighttime. I was uh, on an on-ramp to a highway. Oh, and they're fat and slow in Toronto. And they're fat and slow. And he came out of nowhere crossing that on-ramp just as I'd like put the pedal down to get some speed up to highway speed. And yeah. um, there's nothing I could do. Had I swerved, I would have drove, gone right off the road. And oh. uh, he went right under the tire. So I don't think he felt anything, but uh, I, I, felt, I felt bad for a little while, but it wasn't my fault. I mean, anybody watching 
No, and that, that's uh, that's what they tell you to do in driving school. Right. I know this because I've gone to driving school like within the last five years. I'm a new driver. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I don't know if the listeners know that, but I the only reason I got my license was because my wife told me to, and I've been married five years. Yep. So uh, I went through driving school, and they tell you, do not swerve. No. Because if you swerve to miss an animal, you're going you're causing more danger than you are by hitting that animal. If you swerve and you swerve into oncoming traffic, you could kill people. Mm-hmm. If you swerve e- even into the same uh, direction, if you're on the highway, for example, you could still kill people. You could kill yourself by swerving and losing control. Yep. They tell you, you know, just grit, grit your teeth and bear it, and that animal is dead. Unless it's a moose. Then you're probably dead anyway. Yeah, then you take your chances with the snowbank. <laughs> yeah, you, I would say that's probably a good idea. Yeah. I was going to say, though, anyone watching that, I don't think there was anyone around, but anyone watching it, it would have looked like I just sped up to hit the raccoon, which <laughs> I did not. I no. sped up to get on the highway. Raccoon runs out in front of me, and I had the uh, ability to not panic and swerve off the road and just hit it. So I ran over a chipmunk on my bike once. Yeah, that's another story. <laughs> I was riding through a through a, a park near um uh I forget what the gardens are, but they're in Toronto, one of the parks has uh, this this garden place where they they grow all kinds of flowers and stuff and I was riding up a hill so I was heads down uh really putting in the power into the bike and this uh this little chipmunk ran out. I swerved to avoid it, but then he turned around and ran back the other way and I just kind of ran over it with my front tire. And he then scurried off into the bush. Uh, I don't know if he was hurt or killed or what happened to that thing because it just kind of scurried off. And there was uh, there was a couple of little old ladies sitting on a park bench not three feet away. And <laughs> man, did they ever give me dirty looks. <laughs> like I was trying to hit the friggin' chipmunk. You couldn't do that if you did try. Yeah. And I've, I've been hit by squirrels. And <laughs> what I mean by squirrels running across the road, running into the side of my tire, not hurt. <laughs> okay. I've been hit by birds. Oh, uh, do we need I to do once, a whole podcast episode about the animals that have run into you? I've jumped on my brakes and flipped over and had to do a front handspring over the handlebars of my bike trying to avoid a friggin' uh, squirrel running out in front of me. Animals don't like you. Not when I'm on my bike. No, apparently not. <laughs> All right. Anyways, listen, I don't want to diminish the points that Michael and Chris were trying to make here. No, but we're talking about kill counts, right? <laughs> okay, that's true. You clearly have a high kill count for No, no, they hit me. Every all the animals they're it's their fault. <laughs> oh, it's their fault. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All I want to say one more thing is about Michael's email. He said, "Do you really do you think this is really clever writing by the writers?" I'm going to say yes. I think it is. I think they are writing Carol, they've been doing it for six seasons now, and they have changed her immensely, but I think they've given us enough to understand where that change is coming from, what's caused it, and, you know, the result it's had on her as a character has been completely believable, in my opinion. Yeah. I understand the concerns that Michael has about the – because this stuff is all of a sudden – it's only in the last two episodes that we've seen any of this, but I think it's it's very well explained. Well, yes, it is, and we're just at the beginning of – the new Carol, like she, she's changed before, you know, she, we've seen her, her, uh, go from, uh, you know, the, the wife of Ed to, to, you know, losing her daughter and all these things have, have, have affected her character quite a bit. So this yeah. is just another progression in Carol. And, you know, if Carol survives this season or survives very long, we'll probably see, uh, more development for her in the seasons to come. 
All right, next we have John in Des Moines. In regarding, uh, sorry, in regards to the boiling water analogy, I think what Paula was trying to convey was how stupid email forwards can, uh, like that are, you're supposed to want to be the coffee, and how trivial her job and or existence was as a secretary. She wanted to come across as hardened and tough now to intimidate Carol. I think Carol saw in Paula what she could become if she continued down the murderous path and was reminded how much she does not want to be that person. The rosary was a harsh reminder of what judgment can be awaiting for her if she does not change her ways. Overall, I thought it was a fantastic episode and it adds more layers to the wonderfully complicated Carol. There you go. Lots more layers to the uh, complicated Carol. Now, John also said that he was happy to hear, Jason, that he's not the only one who finds Alicia Witt annoying as hell. Yeah, I told my wife that uh, that this actress was in this uh, episode, and she goes, "Oh, I hate that chick." <laughs> well, it's it's funny. People seem to be really divided on her because John wasn't the only person who wrote in. A, a few other listeners wrote in and said, "I'm totally with Jason. I can't stand her." Um, yeah. And most people seem to remember her from The Sopranos. Sopranos. Yeah, that's what they were saying. But I have never seen that show, so I don't know. I've watched all of The Sopranos, but then again, I've watched all of uh, Justified, and she was in that, and I don't recall her character in that at all. Maybe just my brain is blocking it out. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I have personally no problem with her. I definitely think she has a slight, slightly awkward or unusual way of talking, but I only thought that when I saw her speaking in real life, when I saw Alicia Witt talking, not when Paula on, you know, the character of Paula was talking. So um, I was totally, totally fine with her. She was in Sybil? Oh, man. I guess. I don't know, man. Is The Sopranos listed there? I'm looking for it. Yeah, The Sopranos. She was uh, in one episode. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. Apparently, that's what people... It was impactful to some people, so... Yeah. All right. Our next email comes from Donna in sunny, spring-like San Francisco. And I'm jealous, Donna, because it's not... I mean, I guess it's kind of spring-like here, but it's been raining a lot lately. It's and it's warm and rainy. It's not as warm as I'd like, but I'm bummed out because a coworker of mine gets to go to San Francisco for work this week, and uh, I like to—I would have taken that trip. <laughs> you I know? have a client that's leaving for Florida tomorrow. Well, San, sorry, Florida, but San Francisco is—I prefer it. <laughs> well, yeah. I've never actually been to Florida, but I'm sure it's a lot nicer down there than it is up here. Well, temperature-wise, that's for sure. You never been to Florida? No. God, I thought everybody had been to Florida. I've seen it on TV. I've been there like fourteen or eighteen times. I watched all of Dexter. I'm pretty sure I'm up to speed on uh, Miami anyway. Yeah, yeah, I suppose <laughs> Miami, and it's. Uh, I'm not going to spoil Dexter. All yeah, right. <laughs> if you can't, if you if you can't make a judgment call on a city based on the television show that you watch that is set there, then what good is TV at all? Yeah, and the problem with Florida is you really got to watch out for Florida man. All right. I don't know what that means. Donnie in sunny spring like San Francisco. Don, Donna. Don, Donnie. Sorry, Donna. <laughs> Donna. Anyways, I just wanted to bring up a brilliant, bring up the brilliant dialogue between Paula and Carol just after Carol gets a cigarette off malls. Paula says to her, what are you so afraid of? You're so scared you can't stick to your own principles. And Carol replies, you don't want me to stick to my own principles. <laughs> That was brilliant. Carol is telling her God's own truth directly, looking her in the eye, and Paula has no idea. I loved how throughout this episode, Carol just keeps warning her. Carol sees in Paula who she is becoming. Except, of course, 
our Carol is way smarter than Paula could ever hope to be. In my opinion, this was one of my favorite episodes when it comes to character and story development. Yeah, that was good. Good stuff. Very good. Next we have uh, Angie in Birmingham. I just wanted to say my holy crap this week is my realization that I'm ready for Carol to die. Oh, no. Uh, The girls knocked it out of the park this week, and whilst I've always found Melissa performs better when she's playing weak and and pathetic, this week she just irritated me and left me wondering where the character has left to go. We've seen her evolve from weak Carol to sociopath Carol, but I'm feeling her character is becoming a little bit too Mary Sue-ish. Don't get me wrong, I love the episode, but I just had a feeling we've seen all this before, and if I'm honest, Carol bored me a little. Interesting. So do you know what the term Mary Sue means? I do not. I can gather from context. Well, a Mary Sue, here's the definition that comes from Wikipedia. A Mary Sue for female characters, or a Gary Stew for male characters, is an idealized and seemingly perfect fictional character. Uh... A young or low-rank person who saves the day through unrealistic abilities. Often this character is recognized as an author insert and or wish fulfillment. Uh-huh. So does that fit Carol? Uh, I don't know. Maybe is, is Angie saying that, you know, she's Carol's able to adapt so perfectly to any situation she's in, it's just unrealistic? I think that uh, what Angie is saying is that Carol is Mary is can become Mary Sueish. It's not the character of Carol becoming it, but it's the in story character character of Carol playing a character that is Mary Sueish. I, I don't so, know if that's a thing. I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> well, I mean the uh the cookie baking uh motherly Carol is a character that Carol is putting on. Mm-hmm. Right? Based on the character she was playing with her uh husband Ed. I assume that right. she built a character to deal with that abusive situation. So she's uh, brushing off the, uh, the dust off this character so she can play it for another, uh, another purpose in, in, uh, in this situation that she's in. Mm-hmm. So I think we have a double layer of character here. We have, you know, obviously we have uh, Melissa playing a character named Carol, but I think Carol is playing a character that is very Mary Sueish, And I think Angie's kind of sick of that character that carol is playing got it it's the movie within the movie sort of it's yes it's it's a character that is playing another character interesting it's it's uh very deep a lot of layers to to this whole thing when you start peeling it back like that right it's interesting um as for being carol ready to die i don't know i just finished saying uh in response to somebody else that i think if carol survives this season will probably see her evolve and change even more as the seasons go on so yeah, maybe even into a zombie. Mm, yeah, maybe. <laughs> That'll be another kind of character. She'll be a zombie playing oh, a right. werewolf. <laughs> yeah, that'd, that'd be good. That's right. She could be the lich. Oh, that'd be awesome. She Carol could, be. could become a zombie and then become the, the lich lord that commands the other zombies. That would be the ultimate. I don't think you can become a zombie, or become a zombie, then become a lich. I think you become a lich and then you control zombies. So the lich would have to make her into another lich. I don't know how they do that. But I think Carol would make an awesome lich. Well, write a write a spec script for AMC and send it in and see what they say. Yeah, I'll just uh, what do you call it when you uh, you write a little story to uh, not a prospectus but uh, treatment. A treatment. I, yeah, I could write a. I'll write a treatment. 
There you go. And send, and it, send it around to all of my Hollywood friends. <laughs> yeah, which is nobody. <laughs> which is nobody. Dear Hollywood. <laughs> and just send it in the mail. It's like you can send mail to Santa by putting the H-O-H-O-H-O postal code on it. Yeah. North Pole. I, Hollywood's got an address like that too, I bet. I'm sure. I'll just write in uh, Hollywood and then uh, 90210 because I, I assume that that's one of the, the zip codes in Hollywood. Well, it's or one of them. No, it's Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, uh, yeah. Okay, I'll, I can find a zip code in Hollywood. So just Hollywood, zip code, seal the envelope, and in the envelope would be like, Dear Hollywood, I've written- Dear uh, Mr. Hollywood. <laughs> no, just Dear Hollywood. Dear okay. Hollywood, I've written this uh, treatment, and then go on from there. And I'm sure to get a deal. I'm sure it'll get to the right people. Yeah. All right, next is Kelly on the internet. I have been hearing a lot of chatter about the story Paula tells about the carrot, the egg, and the coffee beans. And I want to offer my opinion as to what one should want to be. I doubt the idea is original, but I think perhaps the best thing to be is the water, as it is doing the changing of all three items. That'd be good if you wanted to be that kind of person. <laughs> yeah, if you want to be the, the one changing people. Yeah, the uh, the hot, bubbling uh, environment in which people are forced to change. Yeah, well. Around. That's right. Um, move on to the next email here because I think uh, this listener puts it uh, just as well. Sure. It's Paul in Bakersfield. When Paula was talking about the carrot, egg, coffee, and boiling water, I applied her metaphor to the world depicted in the show. The boiling water is the zombie apocalypse. The eggs are people like Carol. Uh, she started fragile and became strong. The carrots are the many people who were strong but were just worn down and killed. And lastly, you have the coffee. These are the people like the saviors, the termites, and the governor. Their attempts to control their fate added to the horrific tableau of the zombie apocalypse, but ultimately they were just consumed by it. It's the perfect analogy, Jason. Yeah, no, Paul's got it. Uh, he hit the nail right between the eyes on this one. <laughs> Unlike you with that last sentence. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's perfect. The water is the zombie apocalypse. That's the one that's, no matter what, it's the bad situation that you're in, and it's the one affecting the most change. Yeah. And everything else just falls into place when you think of it like that. So uh, congratulations, Paul. You have successfully figured out that metaphor you did paul good work now paul needs to write to hollywood and tell yeah. them to get their shit together oh yeah you can write us uh but if you yeah i, I think you uh paul if you wanted to write uh, hollywood a letter i think that'd be nice that would be and put, hollywood would like to hear from you put <laughs> put this in there yeah <laughs> uh all right next up is dan in durant iowa i don't think negan's people are inept i just think they're bullies they are used to being on the attack and not being challenged. They show force by beating one person to death and everyone else just falls in line. When you attack a bully, they are surprised and don't know what to do. Rick's group can get in a couple of good attacks because the saviors have gotten lazy. The problem with attacking a bully is that they are still usually bigger and if they can survive the initial attack, they hit back even harder. The question is how hard are they going to hit back? That's the cost Maggie was talking about. Yeah. It's like Ralphie in the Christmas story. Yep. When he uh, he attacks the bully and starts swearing, risen, frizzin, risen, risen, frizzin. Yeah. Yeah. But that bully doesn't attack back, does he? No, he doesn't. He's surprised by the attack, right? right. So he's not used to anybody putting up any kind of resistance. So when uh, Ralphie loses it and uh, uh, goes off on the bully, uh, the bully can't do anything other than just... Uh, you know, cry. Lie there, cry, and take his beating. 
yeah, but the bully will come back. Like, there's no like this is a you know this is a feel good, happy good uh, story with uh, uh, you know Christmas in it. Uh, whereas in you know semi real life, that bully would come back and probably beat the living crap out of Ralphie uh, two weeks later because uh, Ralphie hurt his pride. Yes, and that's exactly what's going to happen on the show here. The saviors are you know beaten up a little bit, but they're not dead, and they can't let this kind of thing go on. So. No. They're going to have to be careful. That's a hard. It's a high cost to pay. What Maggie was saying. Yeah. So I think the uh, our you know Rick and the gang. I think their mom is going to have to come and help them out because that's what happened with Ralphie. Yes. <laughs> have to pull them off and uh... yeah, take them home and wipe their eyes and not tell their dad. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so that's me. Russell in Elksville, Illinois. At one point, the saviors opened the door to leave the room where they were uh, were keeping Maggie and Carol and were greeted by two zombies. The first zombie was stabbed squarely in the head. However, the second zombie appeared to have been stabbed in the side of the head, just slightly above the left cheek. I'm pretty sure there was not this would not result in destroying the brain, yet the zombie went down. Yeah, I included this one because I noticed it too in the episode, and I've noticed this a few times recently where they go for the head stab and it's like more of a neck stab or a cheek stab or something that doesn't really look like that blade would come anywhere near the brain. Well, I got two thoughts on this. One, I did notice this as well in Mm -hmm. the episode, and uh, I got the impression that this was a production error. Like it wasn't necessarily, uh, I I don't think it was by design and I don't think it was necessarily intended. I think that the, um, the stunt man that was, uh, wearing the zombie outfit that, uh, Maggie was, was stabbing. I don't think she hit quite in the spot that she was supposed to. I think she hit it off to the side and it was a little awkward. The knife went in a little awkwardly as well. Okay. So I think it was a slight production mistake that they left in. And because. my first thought when I saw that was, geez, I hope that didn't actually hurt the stuntman because I worry about such things. I know. I know you do. You don't like to see people get hurt by accident uh, yeah. as extras or stunt people or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I, yeah, I just thought maybe they're going for like, if you get someone kind of in the neck, but your angle is up enough and the blade is long enough, maybe that's it. Or maybe you just get the lower brainstem area kind of at the back there. Yeah. Um, the other thought I had was that, uh, you know, these people are all rotting, right? Yeah. What if their brains kind of shift a little bit? <laughs> just, and they, you know, they <laughs> if there's a whole, like somebody, let's say that uh, before they were a zombie, they had really bad teeth and their teeth were all rotted out. So the inside of their mouth was all rotten to begin with. And then they become a zombie and then everything's starting to really let go. And then the, the, their mouth kind of rots out a little bit and their brain kind of slides into the into their mouth area and it doesn't really get in the way of anything so when you stab them in the cheek you're actually hitting the brain yeah i mean it, it the, the brain just kind of droops down a little bit like everything does yeah. as you get older yeah cuz the thing you know gravity's a real bitch on people that age that's right don't i know it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's uh, the other thought is that people's brains could be not necessarily where they're supposed to be droopy brain He's got a bad case of the droopy brain. Yeah, because I, I got parts that not are, aren't quite where they're supposed to be. I, I I would say they aren't quite where they used to be. I think also probably true. they are exactly where they're supposed to be. 
Yeah, generally speaking, but <laughs> they could use some shifting around. Oh, I got lots of parts like that. That's why I started at, started using a standing desk today. It might help nice. some of my parts shift back to, in, into place. Yeah. If I can survive standing up for eight hours it's a tough. day. Have you got a good mat to stand on? I have to get one still. You have to go out and get yourself a nice thick mat. Yep. I can I've, point you in the right direction. I've got a few uh, sources for uh, for good standing mats. Well, I've done some searching on the internet about and read articles on best standing desk mats. So, all right, Uline. Okay, go to the Uline site. They have uh, shop floor uh, stuff that is and, and specifically designed for people that stand around all day. Perfect. I'm sure everyone cares about this. Yeah, <laughs> but if you have any recommendations out there, let me know, people. Yeah. All right. Next is Sarah in Columbia, South Carolina. Holy crap, did you see that change at the end in both Mag uh, Carol and Maggie? What I love about this show is the depth of the characters. While these two women were strong and bold and did things we are generally okay with men doing, the showrunners did not follow the path of the typical Hollywood leading woman action star, whereby they can do everything male action stars do, be perfectly fine doing it, and don't need men for anything, i.e. Disney's Frozen. While Maggie and Carol were able to do those things, they did them out of necessity. But when they were found by their men, you could see the physical and emotional change in them. You could see them both soften and express their dislike of what they had to do. So I'll, here's an email that I think warrants some discussion because hmm. I think what Sarah is saying is that, you know, it's great that these, these, these women are strong characters and, you know, they could, they could do all these things that you typically see men do in like sort of action, action movies, killing a lot of people and stuff like that. Um, and, and I think she's saying that's great, but she's also goes on to say that by the end of the episode, they kind of soften back into more typical female roles, unless I'm yep. misunderstanding. And it yep. sounds like Sarah's saying that's okay, like that's fine. And But I think a lot of people might argue that that kind of undoes a little bit of of what we learn about these characters after seeing them, you know, perform all these, these crazy action movie star type things. I think it's a little bit of both. And I'm not necessarily on the fence. I actually think that both are true simultaneously. And I'll tell you why. Please do. Because in the case of Maggie, when all the, these tough things that she had to do, when she came in contact with her beloved husband after all of this, melting into his arms is perfectly natural. I would expect the same. Actually, I did see the same situation with Glenn. Glenn had to go through all of this stuff while he and Maggie were apart, and he did exactly the same thing. Like, he had this moral quandary of killing living people for the first time, and when he saw his beloved wife, he melted into her arms. Mm -hmm. So that I find perfectly normal, natural, and uh, I don't think that is for or against uh, uh, strong female characters. Uh, in the case of Carol, on the other hand, she has a love interest that is back in Alexandria that is not part of their party. So when she meets up with the group, we had to fall back on a character relationship that we haven't seen in seasons. Mm -hmm. So we had, in order to have that tender moment of her 
melting into somebody's arms, we had to dredge up something from the past that uh, doesn't exist in the current state of this group and might be even a bit confusing for people that just started watching the show this season for some reason. Uh, so I find that a little uh, a little ham-fisted and a little uh, forced uh, as opposed to the Maggie Glenn uh, situation that is exactly the same. So that's why I think that uh, it's perfectly normal uh, for someone to go through a rough situation and then find their uh, – somebody that's that's comforting that they find comforting and comfortable with and to melt into their arms as a as a consolation to be consoled but in the case of uh, Carol in order to get that we had to uh we had to force a situation that that isn't necessarily natural so that might color it a little bit maybe but the question i think is why do we need that like it does totally make sense <clears throat> for maggie to see her husband and and be very emotional about seeing him again, right after everything they've just been through. I I don't have any problem with that. Whether it whether it takes away from the things they had to do to survive in that uh, in that slaughterhouse or not, it com- it makes complete sense that you would be you would feel that way when you run when you in, you know are back reunited with your your spouse. Um, so so it's okay and I think that's what, yeah. like what you're saying right but with Carol why did we even need that at all like I think I think you could argue that it's it's unnecessary and not just because it's confusing and they they brought back that relationship that we haven't seen in a long time but does it kind of diminish what Carol sort of achieved for lack of a better term you know by killing all those people and and performing some of the acts that she performed couldn't she i mean i guess they're all friends right and they're all very close and they are like a family so you are going to be emotional about seeing someone again after something like that but was it necessary i and and whether it and, and it totally makes sense for glenn and maggie was it necessary for carol and i don't know did it sort of take away from what she was just put through I think it did a little, and that yeah. that's what i'm what i'm I'm saying is that it was in order to get that situation we had to force it, and therefore it really kind of was unnecessary mm-hmm. i I don't think it was necessary for uh Carol's character to melt into somebody's arms for uh for consolation. I think that she could have it could have easily stood on her own, and I think it does diminish it just ever so slightly. And and colors what uh, what she's achieved. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's funny to think of these as something that she achieved, but you know, whatever. Yes. What yeah. what what she did and what it what it says about her character and stuff stuff like that. But um, I, I will say that I'm glad that when Daryl asked her, "Are you all right?" her answer was no, because <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. she's not obviously all right after that. If she had said, "Yeah, I'm fine now, big boy," that would have been really, really, <laughs> really dumb, you know. But, um, I guess sort or of. What if what if the first thing she said was, "Thank God you're here. I need a man." <laughs> See, that would have been horrible. That would have been horrible. Yeah, yeah. that would have been terrible. Uh, but that's honestly that's why people have a little bit of problem with this i think and it's because that's what they're implying in a certain way you know um about having these two women sort of as you say melt back into the arms of of these men thank god you're here we need we need our men 
<laughs> you know, and yeah. that's that's I think why it takes away from it a little bit. But as you said, with Maggie and Carol, it completely makes sense because who wouldn't react that way when you Maggie are, and Glenn, uh, Maggie and Glenn, sorry, yeah. who wouldn't react that way when you're re- reunited? So well, maybe it was uh, maybe it was Daryl that uh, that started that whole thing. Maybe Daryl's all, all of a sudden needs to be consoled and comforted by uh, a dear friend. Sure. That's fine. I mean, we didn't see that. It makes no sense, but it's possible. Hey, we don't know what happened to them in the last however many hours it's been since they captured. <laughs> you never know. He might have gone through some shit. Maybe he ran over a raccoon or something. Oh, yeah. And I felt I felt bad <laughs> when I did it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he would have picked it up and cooked it for dinner. So Did, did you go home and... You know, throw yourself into your wife's arms and go, oh, my God, I just killed a raccoon. She was I'm in the so car glad. with me. Oh, I see. Yeah. In fact, I didn't consider that. <laughs> yeah, no, she was in the car with me. And, and I assumed you were by yourself and speeding up to try and hit the raccoon. No, no. Like and, everybody else. <laughs> and a friend of ours was in the back seat. And uh, he, he uh, what did he call me? So he called me raccoon murderer or something like that. And nice. I sort of felt bad. Anyways, <laughs> thank you, Sarah, for that email. All right, well, where are we here, Sarah? All right, so we have Dylan in Hull, UK. I watch a bunch of whodunits on TV and film, and there's a very common trope prevalent in those shows. Right at the start, before the main murder, they set up a bunch of people with motives to kill. In this season of The Walking Dead, I'm seeing a kind of parallel. The writers seem to be setting up a bunch of the main characters who could bite the bullet before the season finale. We've got Carol... She found love, found her morality, possibly found religion, a beloved character whose death would hit the group and viewers hard. Glenn or Maggie? Enough said. Anyone from Abraham, Rosita, or Sasha? Or as I call them, the Alexandria Three. Because why would the writers screw up only one relationship when you could screw up all of them? Daryl, I remember you talking about his popularity kind of waning, which I agree with, but they've got him... Uh, they've given him some good moments recently to endear him to the audience. However, my long shot for the chop would be Rick. I put my case forward like this. He's the one, he's the one death that would shock non-comic readers and comic readers equally. He has also recently found love. His bloodlust has left some members of the group uneasy, not to mention viewers, and it doesn't seem to be coincidence that they've slowly set up Maggie as a ready-made replacement. Saying all of this, I hope it ain't so because I'm a Rick Roller, but I can see it. A Rick Roller. I like that, first Me of all. Me too. Um, I think this is an insane theory because I don't think in a million years they'll kill off Rick until the end of the show, at which point maybe. Have they signed up for a seventh season? Yes. We got the green light. We're good to go. There's no, I, like they're starting storyboards and scripting and that kind of stuff. As far as I know, season seven is uh, is a go and they typically start filming in April or May. So, uh, all right. So they've uh, they've already got call sheets, and they've people got, are starting plan. They're they're planning their flights and uh, hotels and all that kind of crap. Probably got the first eight episodes written in the can already. So, um, yeah, I don't know. They're probably making. There's probably people uh, drinking a lot of coffee and staying up late nights, going, "Holy shit! How are we going to get this done in time for uh, the production <laughs> start in two weeks?" Maybe I don't know. Maybe what? Whatever. They're doing season seven, so if Rick dies, I think it'll be at the end of the show. But Dylan makes a good point. He's the only character that would surprise everybody. Everybody. If you read the comics, you kind of have an idea of where that goes. If you Follow the show close enough, you can you can guess at who might be the next person to die. But nobody, 
nobody is going to ever guess it's going to be Rick. So when that happens, it could be quite something. Except for Dylan. Dylan has guessed it. He's yeah. already guessed it. He's uh, he started the ball rolling here. He has, and he's he's put that little worm in my brain now, and yeah. I'm thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe. Imagine if they did something like that. It would be unprecedented on TV, pretty much, and and it would go down in the history of of uh, you know TV as as the bravest thing a show has ever done. That's probably true, Dylan. If you're right and Rick dies this season. I'm going to award you 14 Jason points, and that is the <laughs> most Jason points that I've ever given out to anybody. So that is also unprecedented. So uh, uh, I wish you luck. <laughs> Me too. Me too. All right. One more email here, and it's from Colin in Columbia, South Carolina. And I include this one because it's funny and I think rather appropriate. Right. Colin writes, holy crap, did you hear that podcast? I thought I had downloaded the Talking Dead podcast, but in fact, it was two Canadians having a very informative discussion on a variety of topics, including daylight savings, portal, hot ham water, the proper preparation and use of two-way radios, Coke pinkies, George <laughs> Lucas's destruction of every child's dream, 70s TV show theme song cover bands, and the most villainous Walking Dead character ever, MacGyver. MacGyver. Chris and Jason, you guys are inconceivably funny and a joy to listen to. <laughs> Inconceivable! Well, thank you, Colin, for that. I'm glad we are. you enjoy listening to us. And uh, I know lots of people do, and it makes me extremely happy, you know, that people sort of enjoy what we're doing here. Um, and uh, I think there are just as many people out there who enjoy the occasional or maybe not so occasional tangent that we take as there are people who are driven crazy by it. <laughs> yeah. So. And if uh, and I'm glad you brought up hot ham water. And uh, Colin, if you write in and you can uh, say where that reference is from, I'll uh, I'll, I'll give you two Jason points. <laughs> All right. Because that is a reference. I don't know. It's not just something I made up. It's a reference to something. Okay. Well, I had no idea. So that's good. Um, we're going to have these Jason points are coming up more frequently than they used to, so we might have to do something here. Yeah. Uh, I also like the term Coke pinkies. Mm-hmm. Because who knows what that means? Unless, Mary Fisher Coke pinkies. Unless you listened last week or on Monday. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for writing in. Uh, before we call it a podcast, we're going to do one more thing. Next week on The Walking Dead. That's right. Next week, coming up on Sunday, is episode uh, 14 of season six and the title is twice as far oh. it's directed by Ulrich riley and this is the first walking dead episode he's ever done oh so we have a new rookie director at least rookie for this show not, not rookie in general uh Ulrich riley's directed shows like castle hustle and other shows that rhyme no hustle <laughs> hustle yeah i don't know what that is N NCIS and Once Upon a Time as well. So, you know, been around, directed some TV, um, but this is his first Walking Dead episode. So cool. we'll see uh, We'll see what he can do. So the title is Twice as Far, and I'm reminding you of that because we want you to send in your title reads so that on Monday next week when we recap that episode, we can read your, or we can play your titles. I've already got one, actually. And that listener sent it in before we'd even seen last week's episode, so he was getting a jump on things. But uh, 
If you want to record a title read, use your phone, your computer, whatever, twice as far as the title and uh, fire it into us. And that is going to do it. Thanks again to everyone for writing in. Um, please feel free to contact us by emailing talkingdeadpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Dead or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Talking Dead. And you can go to our website, talkingdeadpodcast.com and click on send voicemail to record a message. Uh, don't forget about our our new giveaway, The Art of Eating Through the Zombie Apocalypse, a cookbook and culinary survival guide. Uh, visit our website for that and go to slash art of eating to find it. Thanks again to Smart Pop Books, which is an imprint of Ben Bella Books for providing that. Uh, we will be running that contest for a couple of weeks or a few weeks until just after season six ends. So uh, should be fun. Hopefully we're going to get people to enter by submitting iTunes reviews, which will be good. That would be fun. I, I miss doing the iTunes reviews. Yeah, we got to get we got to get more up there if we can, and uh, maybe help iTunes take notice a little bit. Uh, also, use our Amazon links. Go to uh, talkingdeadpodcast.com slash Amazon and click on the country of your choice. That is another great way to help us out in what we're doing here. Um, and that's probably enough uh, stuff for the end of this podcast. So, until next time, everyone. My name is Chris. My name is Jason. Thanks for listening. Bye.